I think my first question for you is, what's gone wrong since the sort of early to mid-90s? Because then we had the triumph of liberalism, we had Fukuyama, we were all in it together, and all the boats across the world were going to rise on a tide of globalization and us trading with each other. And that seemed to sort of do pretty well for sort of 10, 15 years. But something's gone rather sour in the last three, four years. And I wonder why you think that's the case. Yeah, I think it maybe started souring even before that somewhat. 9-11 happened, obviously, in, in 2001. 9-11 means different things in America than it does in Europe. 9-11 in America means the 11th of September, as is well known. And 9-11 in Europe means the 9th of November. In 1989, the um, 9th of November was the day that the Berlin Wall came down, uh, a very significant date. And actually that interregnum between two 9-11s, if you like, between 1989 and 2001, was, as you say, Fukuyama, we thought we'd won, right? It was all over. Liberal, capitalism democracy, etc. Surely everybody could now see this was the only sensible way. And then scroll forward past 9-11 American style, and that's starting to be thrown into question already. But the thing that was going on at that time also was China's accession to the World Trade Organization. That also happened in 2001. And uh, after that, China's dominance of global export markets. It's ramping up of its exports to everyone around the world. And the Walmart effect that followed that in the US and in other countries too, absolutely colossal. And it's not just the supply of cheap exports that China brought to the world, but also the supply of cheap credit that was built up over the same period. It's like uh, if you meet a guy in the street that says, uh, not only will I sell you this Rolex or what have you, for a quarter of the price, you can get it anywhere else, and it's guaranteed the real thing. I would also lend you the money to buy it off me for a quarter of the interest rate that you'll get from any bank at the moment. That's what was going on for a decade across all finished consumer goods. And that supply of credit, amplified enthusiastically by our own banking sectors and, and central banks and so on, is what led us to the great financial crisis in, in uh, 08, 09. Why do you think that it hit us later in the UK? Because the dissatisfaction with blue-collar Americans was becoming pretty apparent even before 9-11 and then certainly afterwards, which led to the rise of populism and, and Trump. But we didn't get there until the vote on Brexit in 2016 in the UK, which seems to be a sort of a reaction against not only Europe, but globalisation as well. It seems to me there's a sense behind it that we can kind of do these things on our own and we need to, you know, retrench and rethink the whole economic system. Yeah, so of course we didn't get Trump until 2016 either. Uh, but uh, I agree with you that the the mood music was different in the, in the states than it was here for a period of time before that. And I think the reason for that primarily is is media. In the US, there were very popular media outlets all along the way, which were promulgating this this anti globalization view and this what became America first view that. Uh, 
Donald Trump won his election on along the way for a long time before, whereas in the UK it was really only the last few years when we've seen the collapse of the centre in the media and elsewhere, really because of the ballooning, the explosion of uh, online media that has driven that away. But it, it was mainstream media in the States that did that before. So the growth of things like Fox News and, and then Breitbart News and all the rest of it, which are heavily watched cable news channels. I know that you disagree with economists on the left who say that globalisation did nothing really for growth and it did nothing to reduce inequality at the global level. Tell me why you think they're wrong on that. So there's a chart which I would describe as the chart of the century so far and maybe all of this century to come, which was put together by an economist named Branko Milanovic. You can find it uh, online, he tweets, etc. I disagree with him on nearly everything, but this chart is denoted uh, the elephant chart. And uh, the reason for that is it, it looks like an elephant, it's shaped like an elephant. And what it is, is a picture of the growth in income over the last three, four decades by income percentile. So from the very poorest people in the global population, all the way up to the very richest. And what it shows is uh, that for the poorest, up to the 60th percentile or so of the global population, income growth has been very strong, including in the very lowest income groups, uh, those on a dollar a day or less have seen their income grow over the last few decades by percentages like 40, 50, 60%, which, all right, if you're on a dollar a day, that's 60 cents. But 60 cents is the difference between life and death for those people very often. And that's those sort of percentage increases in income keep going all the way up to about the 60th percentile of the income distribution. And that's, at that point, that's entry level to working population in an advanced economy like the UK or the US. And at that point, it falls off a cliff. This is the face of the elephant going down into the trunk. And it stays low, pretty much at zero, all the way along to the 90th percentile or thereabouts. And then it picks up again. And uh, the very top, the the top end of the income distribution, the 99th percentile, the one percenters have seen their income grow extremely strongly, more strongly than anybody else. But what's happened over that period is essentially that balance between those who are in developing economies that are to the left of this schedule up to the 60th percentile and the working population, that's most of us in developed economies who have seen very little income growth or none at all over the the last uh, few decades. And it's the shift in income from us in developed economies to the poor people of the world in developing economies that's arisen because of globalisation and within that because of China's accession to the WTO. They were able to export to us and that improved their income dramatically going back to 2000 or thereabouts. Chinese population was extremely poor. Parts of it still are but the growth in uh, income has really benefited them and those are hundreds of millions of people. And if you stand back from all of this process and say, I care about inequality just as an abstract concept, I don't, I'm not now talking about any particular country, I, I just feel that inequality should be lower. Um, there shouldn't be these huge divisions or differences 
between people's standards of living around the world. We're all people. If that's your position, well, then globalization has been a triumph in the sense of reducing inequality at the global level. But the whole, the dip in income growth that's in advanced economies is exactly what has brought populism into play, whether it be Trump in the US or Brexit in the UK, a sense of nativism, a sense of uh, we should be looking after our own first, charity begins at home, all that kind of thing. And I respect and, and can see those sentiments, but what I can't put together is a view that says I'm against inequality and therefore globalization is bad because globalization has been massively helpful. In a practical sense, then, what can be done about this with the onshoring movement? I mean, we hear anecdotal stories about companies bringing their phone lines back to the UK from India. There's an extraordinary story in the Wall Street Journal this month about Salomon, who make running shoes, who are going to be starting a factory to make the running shoes not in China, where they've been made before, but back in France, where the brand came from originally. So do you think that this sort of onshoring, particularly in the area of manufacturing, is is it a realistic thing to bank on? There is some of that happening, and uh, I, I can see some reasons for it, and perhaps we'll come back to that. But it should be borne in mind that in advanced economies everywhere and always, uh, the share of manufacturing in GDP tends to fall and fall a long way. In China, for example, the share of manufacturing in GDP right now is about 40% thereabouts, numbers like that. In the UK, it's about 8%. And the UK, remember, back in the day, used to be the manufacturing powerhouse of the world. The idea that you can reverse that trend is fantasy. What happened with globalization and the China's accession to WTO again and, and other factors is that trend was accelerated somewhat. But the idea that we can go back to having 40% of our people here employed in manufacturing industry is fantasy. Uh, the same in the, in the States. It's, it's not going to be anything close to that. You can maybe slow down the rate at which it's falling and onshoring is part of that story. But actually, I don't think onshoring has got much to do with this previous story about globalization at all. What I think it's to do with is um, a kind of risk of bifurcation in the global economy that's arising from national security concerns primarily rather than uh, sentiment against globalization in and of itself. As, as an economist, then, could you see any benefits in Brexit? As an economist, it's hard to see any, I must say. The consequence of Brexit is to reduce trade. And uh, the epic trading partner in the UK is, is Europe. It's very hard to fill the gap created in a reduction of trade with Europe with any other country around the world, no matter how large they are, just because they're further away from us than Europe is. It's really as simple as that. But I would say the economic impacts of Brexit were never my primary concern. Speaking as a macroeconomist, that's never been my number one issue or even number two issue. The impacts are there. They're negative. They're of the order of maybe uh, three or four percent of GDP uh, in the long run, not all in one go, but gradually trending towards that kind of loss in GDP over a 10, 20-year uh, period, which is not desirable, clearly, but it's, but it's not, uh, not catastrophic or anything like that. No, the biggest issues for me were um, political issues about uh, 
do we want to be part of that political setup or not? I think there's respectable points to be made on both sides there. And issues to do with freedom of, of movement. Uh, and that's where I feel personally most strongly about it. So I think one of the other things that, that has come over very strongly recently is a kind of increased level of confidence among governments that they can sort things out. They've got the answers. I mean, if you look back to 2008, they were the lender of last resort after the crash. When it came to pandemic, everyone was kind of running around like headless chickens. It was them that organized test and trace and getting the vaccination program going. So although I don't sense it hugely in our government in this country, I think there's a growing sense of confidence in industrial strategy, the sort of thing that brings sort of right-wing Americans out in, in, in hives, you know, where somehow government policy is going to manipulate the natural progress of markets. Where do you think that is at, at the moment? There are many people within government who must look quite enviously at regimes like the Chinese. You know, they can, they can pull the levers and things happen. They've got an, an extraordinary amount of power over business and markets there, haven't they? Yes, they do. What they don't have is a is a as it's known in the economics parlance, a price discovery mechanism, because the people who are pulling those levers are reported to by people who tell them what they think they want to hear rather than what's actually happening. And uh, and that can you know sort of tagline that we say about this is if you're a command economy like that, you can control things in the short term, keep a sort of steadier profile in the short term. But the type of errors you make in the long term are orders of magnitude larger than the type of errors we make in open economies with good price discovery mechanisms and good information flows up to all levels and across, across levels. Do governments feel more powerful? Yes, I think they do. Um, are they right in feeling that way? Well, I think that in some respects, yes. I think that the vaccine programme was an extraordinary thing. Uh, it wasn't just government, of course, it was also the private sector that was involved in that. But it was a triumph for the human species that the speed and efficacy of those vaccines, at least as far as they're delivered in advanced economies. Also, the, the decision to just blow the roof of fiscal constraints during COVID uh, and uh, do monetary financing, as it's known in the parlance, which is to say, get your central bank to print money and give it to the government and the government to distribute it and use it in whatever way it likes. And to do that process without limit and in a hurry and at great, great scale, I think was the right decision and softened the blow of the biggest recession of all time, which is what the pandemic was substantially and does lead to the government's feeling well we can do anything now right if we've got away with that we've got away with monetary <laughs> financing uh, and uh, and and if everyone's say, patting us on the back and saying good job well we can use that again does that make you a believer in the sort of hessel tiny and picking winners and industrial strategy so that's the next step right and i have to say i've just got back literally overnight from the from the US and talking to various people in government circles there. And industrial strategy is the mot de jour. It's, it's incredible. Uh, uh, if I think back in this country 10 years ago, uh, those are the words that could not be spoken. Huh? That you just, uh, it was so taboo to talk about industrial strategy, strategy at all because the government's 
record of picking winners is shocking <laughs> in this country and in many others too. Do we think it's going to be less shocking in future? And again, I come back to the same point. I think it's the same factor in play. Industrial strategy, as it's thought of in the US now anyway, and increasingly in the UK, is really a question of the overlap between macroeconomics and national security. And that that field of exploring those overlaps is becoming more and more important, more and more central in government and in the private sector too. It's not any more safe to just say, you can let the markets do their thing and presume that that will deliver the best outcomes for the economy, including the outcomes for national security. Are you an optimist then? I mean, do you think that this is a sort of a hiccup along the way towards something better? Or do you think it is a a fundamental reset that it's going to take us really some while to work our way out of and that might not end well? I'm perennially an optimist. However, I think we are approaching a different uh, setup globally. The idea scrolling back to 2001 or and before was that the best way of coping with regimes that we here don't like and disapprove of is to embrace them and show them the light, show them the, the better way, the way of freedom and democracy and all those good things. And if we can just show them that in, a, in an open embrace, uh, they will surely see it and learn from it and become like us gradually. And the last man, in Fukuyama's terms, will will win, and that will be the end of history. We'll all tend towards this wonderful, liberal, open democracy. We learnt over the last couple of decades that that's not true. Or if it is true, it takes an awfully long time, a lot longer than we're prepared to give it. I'm an optimist because freedom will still win, because that's how people want to live. Fundamentally, that's how people want to live. I, I believe that more or less as an article of faith. And consequently, it will tend towards that end. But in the end, uh, freedom will win because it always does. <laughs>